Hey, everybody, join us as we delve into our favorite dark tales and paranormal mysteries. Venture with us beyond the safe places that exist in daylight as we go Beyond Beyond the the shadows. Shadows. True crime. Paranormal. Hauntings. UFOs. Cryptids and unsolved mysteries. Conspiracy theories. Past lives. Reincarnation. And all the like are just a few of the topics that we will tackle. If it haunts your fucking dreams, then it will be on our show. Hey guys, and welcome back to episode 58 of Beyond the Shadows. Welcome back, Shadow People. So, uh, what's going on, Ryan? All kinds of shit happening in the news this week. There is some crazy shit going on in the news. As usual, it's weird. The world is full of fucking creepers right now, man. (laughs) I I think it always has been, but they're really coming to the surface Oh my god, yeah. Uh, We go through the news and there's like 20 sometimes, and it's hard to pick, but they're all fucking weirdos. So... I don't know if everybody's been looking, but on New Year's Day in downtown Miami, uh, the police responded in mass to the Bayside Marketplace, where 50 juveniles armed with sticks were fighting and causing a disruption. Yeah, did you see? You watched this video, I right? I did. I've been going through a lot of videos on this. For kids fighting with sticks, there's a massive, massive amount of police officers. There is. Yeah. But because a lot of people think that isn't the real reason that the police were there. Yes. Correct. So the story morphed somehow. I'm not saying where. We'll get to that, I guess. To say that the police were there not for the kids, but for eight-foot-tall aliens that were actually lurking around the entrance to the mall. And as Scott just said, there is some there's some, there's some grainy footage. It's, it's Everything's been, grainy. Everything I've seen so far is an overhead shot, and it's quite far overhead, so it's, it's hard to see what you're looking at. But somebody was nice enough to place a big yellow arrow. Right <laughs> above what I'm supposed to be looking at, yeah. <laughs> and even then I can't tell what the hell I'm looking at. So there's a lot of different footage out there. There's a lot of stories, and it's all it's it's all over Instagram. It's blown up on the internet. It's yeah. everywhere. But uh, I don't know. The footage is uh, anything that you see that is supposedly alien like or whatever is very grainy. Looks like a lot of people. A lot of the lot of the footage looks so fake. But what they're saying, some people have claimed that they saw. Uh, eight to ten foot tall aliens. Some claimed they were what shadow, almost like shadows. I haven't read a ton of claims from people that said yeah, the aliens were, were there. Some one individual I said it, that it was like a shadow and it was like almost like skipping, like as it came towards them. And I don't know. There was a, there's a lot of stuff coming out about this. What the, I mean, the biggest thing is that the police response to a bunch of kids with sticks. But when you listen, there was a whole lot of, you know, there was fighting and there was uh, fireworks that were let off that led people to think that there was gunshots. So, I mean, I kind of understand if they thought it was a shooting or something, why so many would show up. society, 50 kids rioting in a mall is going to bring up police in mass response. There had to be 100 cop cars out there. I mean, there are a lot. But, I mean, I guess if you want a response like that, if it's something like that. The police did issue an official statement, which I do have. 
quote, there were no aliens, UFOs or ETs. No airports were closed. No power outages. But we did see Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> Nessie was in the fountain in the food court. Yeah, this one I'm not. I don't know. It's big. It's everywhere. I don't. I'm not buying it. This is. I, I think that quote puts an end to it though, because we know on this show that the cops do not lie. Well, no, they it, don't lie. They don't lie. They don't stretch the truth. <laughs> Never. Uh, no, I'm not so. buying this one. Uh, no, I'm. I. I mean, I'm seeing it everywhere. You're seeing different footage. I've seen somewhere they're talking about there was a portal that opened, and you know. So I mean, it goes to the whole other dimension stuff. But I'm just not buying. There's this one. there's nothing to back one this, this one up. There's just some no. really grainy footage. A couple of scares. A lot of police ads. officers. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't get it. It's a it's a cool story, but I think that's all it is. Yep. So we have one other story this week. Uh, so I think by this point, just about everybody has used an Uber to catch a ride after a night of drinking or to order food. But one thing you shouldn't use it for is a quick getaway. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's not a not a good idea. No, so there's a crook generally. in, uh, well, an individual in uh, Colorado, right? Yeah, it was in Denver. Yeah, yeah, he was using an Uber, um, as a getaway car. <laughs> <laughs> Super move. Twenty uh, six year old man, identified only as Jose, burgled a store in uh, a plumbing store in Denver. So the owner sees a hole cut in his fence. And then he views the security footage and he sees a guy inside. So he calls the cops. The police arrive. They see the Uber driver waiting outside and they ask him what's going on. He says he's there to pick up Jose. <laughs> a man in a black hood approaches mm-hmm. and the police ask him if he's waiting for an Uber. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> he says as he backs away. He tells them his name is Raul. And he's just on his way to his mom's house. But he cannot provide an ID. His bag contains... Oh, Raul. Ah, Raul. <laughs> Always up to something. And his bag contains $8,600 worth of Milwaukee tools that are not his. <laughs> so he called an Uber for his getaway car. God. I, I, long story short. Yeah, that's exactly what Yeah. Happened. What a fucking moron. <laughs> You know, you said that everybody's used an Uber before, but I was thinking about it. I've only called an Uber once, and that was with you. Remember, we went to, uh, was it Foxwoods Casino? It was was Foxwoods. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, so me and Ryan and uh, his brother Brett went to uh, Foxwoods to do a little gambling. And I don't know, maybe we had one or two many (laughs) One or two too many drinks. But you, you did. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> so we definitely had too much to drive. So we called us a, uh, well, none of us said, in Maine, there's no Ubers here because it's everything is like so spread apart. Yeah, there we go. Everybody's got your, your chances. Yeah, you ain't getting one. Not, not where we live. Uh, so. But so in Massachusetts, you can. So I, I put the app on, un- unbeknownst. Ryan was putting another app on his. So I called an Uber. Ryan called Lyft, and then uh, I think we just left and walked yeah. back to the hotel. They didn't show up right away, so we took <laughs> off. But within like a half hour or so, we both got a text that our drivers were there. <laughs> but we weren't. <laughs> no, we were already back at the hotel. So, so we, bo- we both got a decent charge on our credit card. Yeah, so I've still never yeah. uh, I've never been in an Uber or a Lyft, but I have paid for both. <laughs> 
It was all in good fun. Oh, yeah. Like I hadn't lost enough money that night. We gave him a good tip, even though we never met him. (laughs) (laughs) All right, bud. So what do you got for us this week? So we're going to do an episode on time travel this week. Oh, I've been Uh, waiting for this one. Real time travel. If there is such a thing, we're going to cover some cases from history where people said they did. All right. Let's do it. Jump in and see what we got. Thanks for listening, guys. So first up, we have the man from Torred. In 1954, a nondescript-looking man arrived at Haneda Airport in Tokyo. He was noted as a bearded Caucasian man who was wearing a suit. Some say he may have had a French accent, but he spoke a good amount of Japanese as well. Nothing at all was out of the ordinary until he handed over his passport. The passport appeared in all ways to be legitimate, with one large problem. It was issued in the country of Torred, and no such country existed anywhere on the map. When confronted with this glaring discrepancy, the man became agitated. Torred surely did exist, and had for over a thousand years. When asked to point it out on a map, he quickly located and pointed it out. The country he pointed to, however, was Andorra, a small country located between France and Spain. Why was Andorra not on this map, is what the man wanted to know. The story then only got weirder. The company he claimed to work for had never heard of him. The hotel he was said to have reservations at had no knowledge of him. And the business officials he was supposed to be meeting in Tokyo had likewise never heard of him. The man did have stamps, from many airports around the globe, however, and currency from multiple European countries. He was also supposedly carrying multiple documents that actually did support his story. But those were never released, so what those documents were is not clear. I mean, if this is a fraud, he went through an extensive amount yes. of work yes. for, to fraud. I mean, to not a ma- lot of gain. To make a actual passport from a country that doesn't exist, how hard would it be to actually fake yes. a passport? And it's crystal clear that the officials that viewed that passport believed it 100% genuine until they saw the country of Torrid. Nothing raised a red flag. Uh, so, what this guy's gain, if he's a fraudster, is not clear. Yeah, no doubt. It's. Very odd. I mean, it sounds more like a dimensional thing than actual time travel. It's, it's, it's a strange tale for sure. Yeah. Until the strange tale could be sorted out by the Japanese officials, they thought it best that he be put up in a hotel for the night. Two guards were stationed outside of his room to make sure he stuck around. When the officials came to retrieve him the next day, he and all of his possessions were gone. The guards were sure that he had not left the room and they determined that he could not possibly have escaped by the windows. The man from Torrid was never seen or heard from again. Some think he could have been a criminal or a fraudster. Some think he was a time traveler, or possibly from a parallel universe. Such are close cousins, I suppose. That's where I go, yeah. In, in this case, it would probably be a parallel universe where Torrid did exist. Yeah, the bubble universe stuff, I mean, it's so crazy to think about. So your gut instinct, that's the end of that story. So your gut instinct on that story is he was legit, 
but I, he was from a different universe. I don't understand why anyone would fraud that, but people do weird shit. I mean, but if it if it was real, I would go with the bubble universe type stuff where he's coming from another timeline. Now, if he's a fraudster, and he could have been, uh, what's the gain? That's that's the question. So what's the gain? He didn't. Gain I don't anything. know. It's just, and, 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 is it just to pull something over on somebody? And how does he really? disappear out of a locked room? That's the other question. That's what leads me towards the parallel universe theory. Is like, he found his out? I guess. Yeah. Or ripping time or whatever it was, and he disappeared because the guards were outside back, the window. Right? And from from my understanding, it was kind of like a locked window. So he didn't go out the window. He didn't come out the door because there were guards there. But the next morning, he and all his documents were gone. And everything, so where the hell did so he everything go? that was with him was gone. Yes, but didn't they keep his documents? Did they still have his? That was that was gone too, right? Yeah, I believe all his documentation yeah, is gone. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a super interesting story. In the dark forest lies a secret, told in broken stories by those who bore witness: a monster, a murder, a long forgotten homestead. I'm on the search for the ghosts who haunt these places, and I want you to come along. Welcome to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. Here I take an active approach to finding places that people might warn you not to go to. Haunted trails, abandoned towns, old taverns where you might catch a glimpse of a long-deceased patron. Look, you're probably not going to find me trekking through Arizona looking to have a run-in with a skinwalker, and you certainly won't catch me playing with a Ouija board, but... I have spent at least the last 10 years seeking out creepy, haunted, and abandoned places to explore. So lace up your boots, grab a working flashlight, and join me as I tell the tales, hike the trails, and grab a cold pint at the local tavern. You can find the podcast on Apple, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You can find show updates on Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Facebook, and YouTube. And also check out the blog at TalesTrailsTaverns.com. And now, I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. All right, so this one is about the time traveler of Highway 167. On October 20th, 1969, two men were having lunch in a small diner in Abbeville, Louisiana. The men's names differ according to the source, but Ken Mew's High Strangeness column in Strange Magazine number 2 from spring 1988 refers to them as L.C. and Charlie. So we'll go with those names. Uh, he claims in the column to personally know one of the men. That's why I'm just going to go with these names. Okay. So. And if you look into this, there's a ton of sources and, and the small details differ. So I'm, I'm just going to go with that one. Anyway, the two men left the diner, still chatting about work at approximately 1.30 in the afternoon. They were about to make the 15-mile trip in Lafayette along Highway 167. Traffic was light and the men were making good time. They noted only a single car far up ahead of them, as well as a single car back behind them. The car in front of them had a sizable lead, but they closed the gap quickly as it was clearly going very slow. As they got closer, they noticed that the car was quite old, but in surprisingly mint showroom condition. It looked as if it had just been driven off the lot despite being maybe three decades old. The men decided to pass the, the slow-moving car when they noticed a bright orange license plate printed with the year 1940. They agreed that this was odd as well as illegal, unless this car was on a ceremonial parade, which it clearly was not. 
As the men passed the older car, they noticed that the driver was a young woman, with a very young child on the seat beside her. The woman was dressed in very out-of-date clothing that would much more closely match the date on her license plate rather than the current year of 1969. The other thing they took note of was the terrified expression on the woman's face. She was frantically looking back and forth as though lost and unable to figure out where she was. Yeah, she was lost for sure. Yeah, without a doubt. Very lost. <laughs> Imagine that. I yeah. mean, you took a so wrong lost. turn and ended up in a yeah. different different time. <laughs> Some Marty McFly shit right <laughs> no there. Shit. The men asked if she needed help several times, but the message was hard to deliver because the woman couldn't or wouldn't put the window down. They tried to communicate through hand gestures and by slowly mouthing the words, and she finally nodded that yes, she did need help. When they finally saw that she was indeed beginning to pull over, they continued passing her so that they could safely pull over in front of her. To their astonishment, when they turned around, the woman, the child, and her car were nowhere to be seen. They were on a largely empty road surrounded by open fields, so there was literally nowhere that she and her car could have gone. While they tried to piece together this puzzle, the car that was originally behind them had pulled up, and its driver was equally as confused. He had seen the older car pull over, along with their car in front of it, but by the time he pulled up, the older car had vanished. He assumed that an accident had occurred, but now that was clearly not the case. The men searched the area for over an hour, but there was nothing for them to find. The car didn't have an accident and crash. It simply disappeared. Had she truly been three decades further in time than, the sh than she should have been? Which would explain the look of utter terror on her face. Well, yeah. I, I don't know, man. If I'm going, I want to go back in time. I don't want to go forward in time. Yeah, that's true. It, it's yeah. scarier. It, I, when you think, I mean, going back in time. At well, least I think they thinking, both are, man. If I'm going back in time, at least I got an edge. You know, at least I know a few <laughs> things. That, a few things I can use you, in my favor. Yeah, you, got, yeah, you got something in your corner. Yeah, right. But if I go ahead, I'm just going to be another dumbass. Yeah, you can blackmail you know? yourself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so... Otherwise, like, did she bounce back to her own time? Like, when she disappeared, what happened? That's the other question. Did she, yeah, I did mean, she end up back. In that her could own be time? a time travel for her. It could be a ghost. I mean, you hope for her sake. If she bumped back in time, she went to her own time. right back to her own time, and not some other. I mean, she might have just been terrified. She might have gone from you know from that time back to like eighteen forty two, and that she's equally as fucked. So it, it's a it's a weird story. Ripple in time. Yeah, that's that's another interesting one. All right, so next up, we got the Versailles – I'm calling it the Versailles Incident of 1901. Uh, this, this is one of the most uh, famous time travel cases. Uh, so this one comes from France in 1901. Two British women, Charlotte Anne Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain, were in France touring the Palace of Versailles as part of a tour. The women were a little bit bored by the palace – and decided that they would visit Marie Antoinette's favorite part of Versailles, the Petit, the Petit uh, Trianon. The Petit Trianon was a small manor house built in the mid-1700s and given by Louis XVI to his new 19-year-old bride, Marie Antoinette. It was located in the extensive palace gardens known as the Grand Trianon. 
When they got to the entrance to the park, they found it was closed. They decided to try and use their tour guide and navigate there on their own, but they soon found themselves lost. I said tour guide. I meant like guide book. Right. There was no tour guide. They ended up missing the Allée de Du. I took six years of French, man. This shit is hard. <laughs> the Allée de Du Trianon. Nailed were, it. Yeah, definitely. Where they were supposed to turn, so they missed this. They ended up on a side lane, and they passed by their intended uh, destination. They noticed a woman shaking out a white cloth in a window, as well as an abandoned farmhouse. Both women say that at this time they began to feel a strange sense of unease as well as dread. They came upon two men that they initially described as palace gardeners, who told them to continue on straight ahead to find their destination. Moberly described the men as, quote, very dignified officials dressed in long grayish green coats with small three-cornered hats. As they continued down the alley... Jordan saw an old cottage where a woman was handing a jug to a young girl through a window. She described the scene as being so serene like a painting, but quickly the atmosphere changed and everything became very unnatural. Moberly did not see the cottage, nor the woman or the girl, but she did feel the atmosphere shift. She later wrote, Everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant, even the trees seemed to become flat and lifeless, like wood worked into a tapestry. There were no effects of light or shade, and no wind stirred the trees. Next, they approached a kiosk before the entry to the Petit Trianon, where they both observed a man sitting. He looked in their direction, but they felt like he was more looking through them than at them, and both women described his physical appearance in less than flattering terms. Moberly described him as, quote, most repulsive. Mm. While Jordan said, the man slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox. His complexion was very dark. The expression was evil and yet unseeing. And though I did not feel that he was looking particularly at us, I felt a repugnance in going past him. I mean, I think at this point he should have made his move because they were definitely into him. Yeah, right, for sure. <laughs> when they reached the Petit Trianon, there was a lady sitting in the grass in front of the chateau, and she was sketching. Moberly described the woman as wearing a light summer dress, a white hat with long hair. At first, Moberly took her as a tourist, but thought her appearance seemed out of time. Her clothing was undoubtedly from an earlier time. She was said to have watched them as they crossed the bridge to the manor. Jordan did not see the lady at all, which is important. These ladies are seeing stuff, but they're not always seeing the same thing. Right. Eventually, they came into contact with another group of tourists, and both women agreed that it was at this point that the feeling of normalcy returned. The women didn't directly speak about the strangeness of their experience for a week. They believed that their encounter was paranormal in nature and that they were experiencing a haunting. They agreed that the strange people they encountered were from the past. Upon seeing a portrait of Marie Antoinette for the first time, Moberly was convinced that this was the lady, she, the lady that she had seen sketching in the grass. 
uh, both women came to believe that the pock-marked scary man that they observed at the, the kiosk was um, – this name's going to be brutal. <laughs> <laughs> you need me to read it for you? <laughs> Comte de Fadru. I think that's close. That was perfect. Uh, who was, uh, from history, a noted companion of the queen. Very real guy, pockmarked, friend of the queen. They later tried to retrace their path but could not find it or almost any of the landmarks that they had observed. But later research revealed that these landmarks did in fact exist during the time of Marie Antoinette. Charlotte Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain eventually wrote a book about their experiences, uh, calling it simply An Adventure. The book was an immediate sensation, but most critics found the story itself contradictory and quite unbelievable. It was published under a pseudonym, with the women's real identities not being revealed for more than 20 years. Mm. Uh, many theories have been put forth over the years to try and explain what happened that day, so I'm just going to go through them real quick. Number one, the ladies experienced a rip in time that they passed through briefly before returning to their own time. Very plausible from what you read. Yep, that's, a, that's where plausible. I lean. Yep. Uh, some people think this is it. I do not. They shared hallucinations. I don't get this. I don't I – mean, of course. I mean, these ladies weren't licking stamps you know, right before they went through. You know what's funny is that I don't get that someone could share hallucination, but I'm totally cool with a rip in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I, I I agree with you, though. I'm the same boat. You know what I mean? I'm in the same For boat. For that to happen – when they're like – whenever they talk about mass hallucination or something like that, you're not going to convince me that you're going to get, say, 10, 20 people in the same room that hallucinate the same thing. No, I, the same th- – that's my instinct, and I agree with you. I don't think they shared hallucination, but when you listen to the story, now that I think about it, they didn't share the same hallucination because a couple of times one of them saw something that the other one did not see. That's different. But I still don't buy it that their hallucination happened and ended at the same time. These are learned ladies. They're not out dropping acid at Versailles. Like, why did the hallucination even happen and why did it end at the same time? I don't buy right. that one. I don't buy that one. It's funny it's, with all the stuff, the, all the stuff that I believe to have, two people have the same hallucination is just so fucking far out there for me. <laughs> uh, so number three, I agree with you. So number three, again, this one I think is plausible. They stumbled upon a celebration or a reenactment on the day of their visit that neither one of them was aware of. Uh, aware of, and these are quite frequent in that area. Uh, oh well, I can like see that. On, on Gettysburg, they do you know reenactments where they all yeah. dress in the past, but. So when they checked, there was none reported that day or even that week. But the other thing that I'm going to stand about that one that makes for me this one implausible is that might explain the people in period dress, but it doesn't explain the buildings that should have been there that weren't oh, yeah, that's or good. shouldn't have been there that were. Right. You, you don't change buildings for a reenactment. Right. That's, yeah, they're not going they went there. across the bridge that doesn't exist nowadays. Uh, so yeah. I mean, it's hard to explain that one. And then the last one, the last possible explanation is that they were both flat out full of shit. And that's another good option. Uh, that being said, both ladies were lifelong accomplished academics. They were like – They're not the type high you would up, think that would No, make, they were like high up in colleges, which – This would reflect poorly on them better than it would very be. Very much. I mean, they, it would be, uh, they were in high upstanding positions even nowadays, let alone for a ladies – early 1900s, like real high position. So they had a lot to lose by coming forth with a story like this. But that being said, they did publish it under a pseudonym. Right. Uh, 
But, you know, so publishing it under a pseudonym means they were almost certainly weren't looking for fame. That's true, too. So I, I doubt that they were just flat out full of shit. There wasn't much to gain. It's hard to say. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a strange story. It's a tough one. All right. So next we're going to do the uh, story of Victor uh, Goddard. In 1935, Air Marshal Victor Goddard, an RAF wing commander, was flying from Edinburgh, Scotland, to his home base in Andover, England. During his trip, he flew across a derelict airstrip in Drem that had been built during the First World War. It hadn't been used as an airstrip in years and had since been converted into a farm, with weeds and nature overtaking the crumbling hangars. Suddenly, a large storm struck, and he was hit by powerful winds and what he described as a yellow-brown cloud. He was becoming disoriented and began to lose control of his plane. He attempted to climb up above the clouds, but they seemed to be endless. Suddenly, he lost control of the aircraft and began a steep plummet. He couldn't see the ground or anything else, just those strange yellow clouds. Suddenly, the clouds parted, and he was back out in the bright sunlight. He was once again over the Drem airfield, but something had changed. The hangars were not in a state of disrepair, but rather appeared brand new. There were four planes on the ground, and they were all painted yellow. The RAF had never used yellow on its aircraft. Three of the planes were biplanes that he was familiar with, but the fourth was nothing he had ever seen. It was a monoplane, and the RAF didn't have such a thing in 1935. He also witnessed mechanics on the ground, but these were not RAF mechanics. They wore brown overalls, whereas these men he was seeing now were dressed in blue. He tried to make sense of what he was seeing, but he had little time to think about it, as the blue skies gave way once more to the storm and the strange yellow clouds. He again struggled to keep control of his plane, but eventually... He made his way out of the storm and found himself above his home base at Andover. He told a few friends about his experience, but he was generally met with laughter and skepticism, so he spoke about it no more. You know, your friends are the last people you want to tell anything. Oh, yeah, your friend, generally, your friends are douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Friends or family, they're going to be the worst. Uh, even when you improve it, they're still going to laugh. Oh, every time. But four years later, in 1939... Things had changed, and every single aspect of God's experience was proved correct. The base was restored. The hangars were pristine. The RAF had painted all of its training planes yellow, and had even added a monoplane, the Magister. And the mechanics no longer wore brown overalls, but the blue that God had experienced. God had experienced. So this is one of those questions: Did he get lucky? And for some God knows reason, guess to all of his friends in public what the place was going to look like in four years, or had he experienced a time rep? I mean, this one, this one's hard to, to disprove because he actually ended up coming true. Every single thing he said was true. Now, if he was guessing, what was the gain? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, Hi, I'm Katie, and I'm Kelly. And if you're looking for a super fun, awesome podcast to listen to, check us out. All, All things outrageously, outrageously dark, scary, beautiful, and totally, and totally true. true. 
Well, that that's an interesting one. Because yeah, I mean, it's it's not often you hear that they actually what he said came true. You know? No, so what he described to his friends and everybody that listened was laughable. In fact, they all laughed at him. But four years later, every bit was correct. Wow. Had that, he, that's a quick turnaround. Had too, he four years. guessed? I mean, I don't know. That that one's hard to shake off. That's Some of these are hard to dismiss, but that one for me is a little bit harder. So I'm 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 going to I'm going to lead towards believe in this one. Uh, we do our 1 to 10 scale. I'm going to put this one in an 8. Really? That's good. Yeah. Well, then I'll put it at a seven then. Yeah, I figured you would. (laughs) (laughs) On April 23rd, 2006, in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, police were called to deal with a confused young man who kept staring up at the buildings with a bewildered look on his face and asking what year it was. He was dressed in old-style clothing and carrying a very dated camera as well. He said his name was Sergei... Paul Marenko, and when police asked for his ID, the story got even stranger. His ID was a national ID card that would have been issued to all citizens of the former Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union hadn't existed for 15 years, and Ukraine was an independent nation now. He said the last thing he knew, he was living in the year 1958, and then minutes later, he was here with no idea of what had happened. The police thought he was obviously a little bit off in his head, and they brought him in for a psychiatric evaluation. When meeting with Dr. Pablo Krutikov, he stated his full name was Sergei Valentinovikov. Oh, fucking nailing this thing. You got it, dude. Ponomarenko. Smith. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That was so silky they don't, smooth. They don't know so silky name. smooth. <laughs> <laughs> and that he was born on June 16th, 1932. This would have made him about 74 years old, but he looked to be about 30. And he told the doctor that he was 25. He also told the doctor that the last thing he remembered was walking through Kiev with his fiancee, Valentina Kurish, taking pictures with his camera. He spotted a strange object in the sky. And thinking that he could get a better look with a picture, he attempted to do so and found himself in 2006. The doctor thought that the best way to get to the bottom of the man's delusions and to prove that his time travel was not real was to get the man's film developed. But the camera was old and the film couldn't be processed by current technology, so it had to be sent to a specialist. That type of film hadn't been produced in almost 30 years but it was in perfect condition, and he was able to develop it. The story got even stranger at this point. The photos did indeed show Kiev in the 1950s. One of the pictures showed Sergei, Sergei as he looked today, with an unknown young woman standing in front of old buildings from Kiev's past, which no longer existed. And he was wearing the exact same clothing as he wore when he arrived in 2006. And one picture showed a strange bell-shaped craft up in the sky. Dr. Kutrikov then sat to interview Sergei again on April 26, 2006. When shown the recovered images, he essentially said, See, I told you. He added, I so far do not understand what this object is. 
and how something like that happened to me at the same moment when I took the picture. And I went down to look at the camera and somehow ended up in this year. After the interview was complete, Sergey was seen on camera entering his room at the clinic and is then never seen again. Cameras never capture him leaving the room and the windows were barred, but nonetheless, he was gone. While trying to locate him, police find that a man by that name did, in fact, live in Kiev in the 1950s, but he had disappeared in 1958. They tracked down the woman from his photo and found that she was a real person. She was still alive, and she was now in her 70s. Valentina Kurish confirmed that her fiancé had disappeared for several days back in 1958, but he had come back. He had returned. When he returned, he could tell stories of the future, and he predicted things like cell phones and a lot of things. She also showed the authorities a photo Sergei had allegedly sent her that he claimed was from the year 2050. It showed a much older Sergei in uh, Kiev, but the skyline featured buildings that did not exist in the 1950s or the 2000s. She said that he disappeared again in 1970, telling her he would soon return, but this time he never did. He disappeared after that. He, he never, disappeared again. So he actually was a missing person. Yes, he disappeared forever after 1970. So he disappeared in oh. 1958 for a couple of weeks, came back, gave her, gave her his evidence and explained where he had been. And disappeared then, again in 1970, telling her before he left, and never I'll be back again. soon. But this time he stayed gone. Okay, so during that story, you mentioned that he looked up at the sky and he saw a bell thing. The whole time you were talking about that. All I could think of is, was didn't Hitler have like a bell? Wasn't he, there like a big bell thing that was related to him that had something to do with time travel or something did. like that? He uh, did. The rumor is, and we're going to have to look more into this one in a future episode, but uh, they, they talk about a lot of the Nazi super weapons on their technology. And one of those things that's rumored to exist or rumored to have existed was, was called uh, the Die Glock. Uh, that's the I bell. I think I'm saying that right. But they call it the Nazi bell. Yeah, yeah, but what historians aren't sure of is what the Nazi bell was. Some think it was a, a time machine or some sort of a super weapon, or they're not even sure if it existed at all. I've seen some specials about it and stuff, and I've seen it where they thought some in the ones I was watching that they thought it was tied to time travel, which would make link this story in. That's the one that makes most sense to me. But then you hear from other ones that don't think it was real at all. Uh, but the Nazi scientists were really advanced. They were there. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have gotten to the moon. So, I mean, you know. Right. They brought a lot of the stuff to the table. So I would like to look to the Die Glock and uh, further, deeper in a future episode. But it's on the table. Yeah. And if it was anything, my guess is it was it was a time machine. That's crazy. So what we just covered is the story in a nutshell. Uh but when you look closer, the story does have some holes, and I'm not saying it's fraudulent, but I just want to get into those and let you guys make up your own mind. Uh, so the stamp on his Soviet ID card is very fuzzy, and I've seen pictures of it, and much lighter than they usually appeared. He claimed in his interviews with a doctor that his birth date was June of 1932, yet the date on his ID card is March 1932, and it's written in Russian, so I have to take other people's translations for this information. Uh, the type of film the camera contained was the type that would have been used in 1958, which matches matches a story. Uh, 
but it was readily available in all that area until 1990 or so. So it wouldn't have been anywhere near as rare as the story implies in 2006 Ukraine. It would have been rare, but not anywhere near as rare. Experts have looked closely at his photo from 2050, and they think it's nothing more than a relatively poorly done Photoshop. Uh, The river in the foreground is exactly what it's purported to be, but the buildings in the background are a collection of random skylines. And some buildings even even seem to show up more than once. Uh, and a lot of experts think that one of them is the Empire State Building. And to me, it looks like it is. Uh, okay. So the, the story isn't bad. But when you really look at it, there are some red flags. Uh, his, his 2050 photograph is almost certainly a fake. Uh, the rest of the story, it's hard to say. But uh, oh, They should have left it at that. You know, if it's a fraud, it's a well-done fraud. If there is such a thing, a but there are still holes. There's a ton of effort in, but there still are some holes. Uh, the guy, I saw it online, but the guy who pointed out the difference in his stamp. I mean, that's not something I would have found on my own, but when I watched a video of a bunch of Soviet ID cards with the stamps versus his one, all of a sudden I was like, fuck, you're right. That thing does not look right. I wouldn't notice that because I don't know what a fucking Soviet ID card looks like. You don't? But, but his stamp does look a little sketchy. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to you have to follow somebody that's familiar with these things to be able to spot a fake, and maybe that was this guy's goal. If you claim you're from a country that no longer exists and there are no experts on it, then there's nobody there to call you full of shit. Right. All right, so we got one last time travel story, and this one's about the Hamburg Air Raid. So 1932, newspaper reporter J. Bernard Hutton Hutton, and photographer Joachim Brandt were in Hamburg, Germany, doing a feature on the city's shipyard. They went out to the massive complex, took photos, did their interviews, and completed their assignment without incident by late afternoon. While they were walking back to the shipyard gates, the men heard the unmistakable sound of incoming aircraft. Not one or two but a lot. When they looked up, they saw a massive squadron of RAF bombers overhead. Bombs poured forth from the planes and the men began to run as quickly as they could. Explosions thundered all around as they ran towards safety. Brant snapped a few pictures as best he could while he ran. Fuel tanks exploded, warehouses collapsed, cranes fell over, and the whole area fell into chaos. The men also heard the city's anti-aircraft guns spring to life as they reached the shipyard gates. They asked the gate security if there was anything they could do to help, but they were told to just leave the area immediately. As they reached their car and began the drive into Hamburg, they became confused. The sky was no longer gray with smoke, but sunny and blue. There was no chaos or damage in the city, and everyone went about their business quite normally. When turning around and looked behind them, they found that the shipyards appeared to be quite intact. No sign of anything amiss. So they arrived back in the newspaper's offices. Their story was obviously not believed. Brant's film was developed, and the photos he shot during the attack and the ensuing inferno showed nothing out of the ordinary at all. The editors thought that they had just hopped into the bar for some stiff drinks on their way, <laughs> on their way back. Because their story was clearly not true. But not long before World War II began, Bernard Hutton moved to London. It was in 1943 when he read the story in a newspaper 
about a hugely successful RAF raid on the shipyard in Hamburg. The photos he saw matched exactly with what he and his partner had witnessed. Only they, only they had seen it 11 years before it actually happened. Oh, wow. Well, that's interesting. Very strange story. But, but his film had nothing on it. Yeah, so nothing about their story was concrete other than they described in perfect detail what hadn't happened yet. Uh, so they yes. saw the future. I guess. Uh, yeah, but they don't have the photo to prove it. So right. I'm not saying they're being honest, but there's there's nothing other than their word to back up that story. But well, that's cool. Well, I mean, how would they fake that though, and why would they fake that? I don't know. Why would you walk into your office and describe exactly what happened 11 years? Ago? I mean, unless you saw it. But I mean, yeah. if, if you're faking it, man, there's nothing to, to pull gain. A fraud like that. There's nothing just... to gain. You're just opening yourself up to, especially a reporter and a photographer. Right. I mean, they rely on. Their and, reputation, you know what I mean? Well, unless they're trying to get there, you know, this is what makes them famous, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't guess. know. There's always some weird al- reason for whatever. But I don't know. So Those is, are good, though, Is man. time travel real, man? I don't know. Uh, see, these are some of the best stories I can find for it. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Uh I have a hard time wrapping my brain around time travel, but I mean, if you start listening to what the scientists say, yeah, if I can find know, a fucking flux capacitor physics. online, man, I'm <laughs> right. grabbing two or three of them. <laughs> Ryan some, wants to this, go back and no, dance this, with his mom. No, there's, some, there's some shit from my past I'd fix. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the mistakes that make us who we are. <laughs> who really fucked up? <laughs> no, good I, stories, man. Good stories. Thanks. Buddy. I like that. So we're going to go into the fire pit. But before we go into the fire pit, I want to say, if you've got a funny story, I want a funny fire pit story. And so the first person who can send me a fire pit story that is hilarious that we can do on the air, we're going to give you a Beyond the Shadows t-shirt. And uh, so first one in. If we get two and they tie and they're both great, we'll give we'll send out a couple Fuck, t-shirts. we'll even sign it. Tell you, oh we'll God! Even, we'll even then it will be that, worthless. That'll actually probably bring the value <laughs> down. But if you want it signed, <laughs> we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, but, thanks for listening, guys. All right, we'll catch you in the fire, fire pit. All right, so this week's fire pit story comes from Kelly from uh, the All Things Outrageously Dark, Scary, Beautiful, and Totes True. Badass. It's one of our favorite shows, guys. Check them yeah, out. Yeah, go check them out. So this story comes from Kelly. It says, hey, boys, here's my fire pit story. It's not actually mine because I don't put up with the, the spirit shit very well. Every time I feel a presence, I aggressively tell it to fuck off. Smart. <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine her saying that. Yeah. She said it to us, I think. Yeah, yeah. Probably. (laughs) She should have. (laughs) And, well, actually, this isn't a paranormal story, but it's really freaky story. 
Have you ever heard of Outward Bounds? If not, it's an outdoor training program for teens and adults. They help you develop survival skills, and then you, go, then you get to go on a chosen outdoor adventure. So we were in high school, and my friend decided that she would like to go on the Outward Bounds adventure to the Australian Outback. No doubt. That sounds freaking awesome. No doubt. As part of her prerequisites for the trip, she needed to spend one night alone in the forest. And that's scary as hell, dude. We were just out in the forest with three of us, and it was scary. (laughs) (laughs) That was no big deal for her. She had always loved to hike and camp in the Olympic Peninsula, and she thought of this prerequisite as more of a chance for her to do what she loved rather than honing her survival skills. So off she went into the Olympic Forest, where she found a spot, set up camp fairly easily, She arrived up there in the early afternoon and spent the rest of the day hiking the local areas and taking pictures on her camera. Now, this is when we were in high school, so digital cameras were not a thing. She had the old school one where you bought the film and loaded the camera and then had to take the uh, used film to the Photoshop to get developed. And then wait a week and you'd actually get your photos. Yeah. Isn't it crazy what you had to do to get photos before? Your generation was crazy. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, I just heard about it. Nothing but digital for this guy. <laughs> no instant satis- satisfaction here. In total, she bought four rolls of film with her. That night, she made her campfire dinner and headed off to bed. She fell asleep to the sound of the forest and awoke well-rested in the morning. Since the task was only one night in the forest alone, she began to pack up her camp. She packed her clothes, toiletries, and eventually her sleeping bag and tent. When she went back to pack up her film, she noticed that all four rolls appeared to be used. She could have sworn that she had only used three rolls, but being forgetful at the time and really enjoying nature that day, she chalked it up as misremembering and didn't think much of it. She got in her car and was on the road, safely back home. She headed to the photo shop the next day, to begin with this strenuous process of having her film developed. The next week, she got on the phone. I'm sorry. The next week, she got the phone call that all four roles had been developed. She was excited to check her photos because of all the animals she was able to capture. I forgot to mention that it was in late spring, so everything was in full bloom, and she even captured a few newly born fawns. She picked up her photos without a glitch, and began an exciting as, and being as excited as she was, she opened them in the car to, re, to review. The first three rolls were expected, a ton of wildlife, wildflowers, and mountain lakes that she had hiked to. Nothing she hadn't expected, but she loved being able to reminisce of her lovely night in the woods. But then she got to the fourth roll, much to her horror. The fourth roll of film contained only one thing over and over again. They were all pictures of her sleeping. She never found out what or who took the photos, and the truth eludes us to this day. This is so creepy. She enjoyed her Australian Outback adventure, never having to use her prison pocket for peanut butter. <laughs> that was from our story we did with them. No, That's a no-fucking-way reference. And never having mysteriously sleeping pictures of her. That is crazy. Can you imagine? Did you go to Australia during that time? Yeah. Though, you creepy fucker. <laughs> Can you imagine going through no, your yeah, film and you right. find it? Yeah. Ah, you know. No, I can't. No. 
That is absolutely petrifying. You're sleeping in the woods, which is scary enough, and then you find a roll of pictures of you. Oh, I've, I did hear a story. Something similar to this was these people were camping, and they had a film just like this. And then when they developed the film and they're going through it, it's some dude's ass, and there's something sticking out of it. And they're looking to see what's sticking out of it, and it's their toothbrush. <laughs> That's an Not as creepy, but that's way ur- worse. That's an urban legend. <laughs> You've heard that story, haven't you? <laughs> no. It was my toothbrush. <laughs> <Your> toothbrush <laughs> or I was the guy. Your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Kelly, thank you. Thanks no, that, for that story. That that's, story that is yeah. super creepy. Super. Very creepy. Yeah. yeah. I, it's I, one of those ones you almost hope was made up, but it probably wasn't. No, you, you don't. I just kind of hope it was. That's supposedly a friend of hers, so yeah, yeah no. No, thank you. There are some creepy fuckers out there. A lot of them. As yeah. we cover in our generally in our intro news stories of this, there's a lot of creepy <laughs> fuckers out there. So, guys, you got your fire pit stories. Send them into Beyond the Shadows two hundred seven at gmail dot com. Um, any you can send them to us on Instagram, any of the socials. Uh, and like I said, you, we want a couple funny ones. If we get them, uh, the funniest one that we air, we will send you guys a Beyond the Shadows T shirt that Ryan said he will sign. Definitely. <laughs> Unless you don't want me to. <laughs> That'll fuck up the value. That'll be in the request box. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. Have a good one. Catch you later.